Tonight we continue our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we are still in the seventh chapter. And this evening I'm going to repeat verse 14 that I looked at briefly last week, and I will read then through the end of the chapter, Romans 7, beginning at verse 14, and ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Dear friends, this is the Word of God for you, for your comfort, for your instruction, and for your edification. Please be seated. Let us pray. Now, Lord, as we come to this severely difficult portion of this epistle. Again, we beg for your assistance by the illuminating power of the Holy Ghost, who indeed is the Spirit of truth, without whose assistance our hearts and minds would be shut out against that truth. But now let us hear it in its purity. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we began our study of chapter 7 of Romans, you may recall that I mentioned at the time that apart from Romans 9, which is uh, perennially controversial because of its teaching, indeed clear teaching, on the doctrine of God's sovereign grace in election, 
that second to that chapter, historically, chapter 7 has been the focal point of very serious theological controversy, which controversy has not ended even in our own time. And the focus of that controversy has to do with the question of whether it is possible and indeed important for the Christian to achieve a state of moral perfection in this life prior to entering into glory. There have been several movements in church history that have taught the idea that in addition to the singular moment of regeneration by which we are brought to faith and consequently justification, that there is also postulated a second work of grace that is equally instantaneous and equally wrought by the power of the Holy Ghost as is that first work of grace that we call regeneration. And what this second work of grace effects in the life of the Christian is instant, complete sanctification. Now, the most important biblical text that would militate against such a doctrine of a second work of grace that produces instant sanctification is the text that I've just read to you tonight in chapter 7 of Romans. Because in this chapter, the Apostle Paul, writing in the present tense, talks of this painful, ongoing struggle in his life and the conflict between walking according to the Spirit and still surrendering to elements of the vestigial remnants of the flesh. Because obviously, at least at the time when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he apparently, I should say obviously and now go to the weaker term apparently, uh, had not yet accomplished or reached this second work of grace. Now, the advocates of perfectionism of one kind or another have argued that though Paul writes in the present tense, he, despite that use of the Greek uh, language, is simply writing presently in recollection of the former state in which he found himself prior to his uh, regeneration unto faith. Now, this passage has been worked over again and again and again by the best Greek interpreters of history, and I can just simply say dogmatically, I find absolutely no justification whatsoever for finding in, in this text anything other than the contemporary struggle that the apostle was having with respect to his own progress in sanctification. In the 19th century, several churches, particularly in America, following after some of the ideas that were first set forth by John Wesley that I'll mention in a few moments, 
developed special churches that were called, and are still called today, holiness churches. And these holiness churches are so called because part of their doctrine is the idea that there is a second work of grace available to every Christian by which they can uh, experience instantaneous sanctification or holiness. The beginnings of modern Pentecostalism were, were also tied in with this perfectionist idea where the second work of grace which was manifested and given evidence to by speaking in tongues, was indeed this work of grace that gave people instantaneous holiness. It's only in recent times, in the advent of neo-Pentecostalism, that adjustments have been made to say that no, what the baptism of the Holy Spirit really does is empower Christians for ministry, but doesn't necessarily produce in them an immediate victory over all sin. Now, having said that, let me just say that in my whole life and experience as a teacher and preacher, I've only encountered two people who have told me, uh, frankly, that they believed that they had this second work of grace to the extent that they were now without sin of any sort. The first person I met who made this claim was a woman who I honestly have to say you would probably not want to spend much time with. Uh, Indeed, she was nasty. But she was so filled with the conviction of her perfection that she didn't want to hear anything to the contrary in my discussions with her from the Bible were to no avail. And she was one who strongly asserted that Paul was talking about his former condition. The second one, which uh, allowed more lengthy discussion, was a young student, 17 years of age, whom I met when I was doing my graduate work in the Netherlands. This young boy was an American student from Texas who was an exchange student in Holland and I was involved coaching some baseball there, and he was playing baseball, and I had a chance to step beside him. And he came from one of these holiness churches, and he told me that he indeed had arrived at perfection. And when I began to discuss with him the teaching of Romans 7, he was quick to use the standard response that Paul was not speaking in the present tense, and I kind of bullied this poor soul by bringing out the Greek New Testament and working through the Greek grammar and pointing a passage upon passage to him that Paul was clearly speaking in the present tense about his present condition, and even went on to say that the sentiments that the apostle expresses here in the seventh chapter are sentiments that you don't find in unregenerate people, such as his love for the law, and his great desire to please God in the Spirit, and so on. Well, after a lengthy discussion with this young man, I was finally able to convince him that, in fact, Paul in Romans 7 was talking about his present condition. 
And I thought, of course, at that point that all debate was now over. And when I then made the application of his own conclusion, I said, so you see then, the apostle is describing his ongoing struggle in the Christian life, and what do you think now about your assessment that you've reached a level of perfection? And he said, well, it's sad to hear that the apostle hadn't made it. And I said, do you really believe that at age 17 you've achieved a higher level of sanctification than the Apostle Paul had reached at the time that he wrote his magnum opus to the church at Rome. And he didn't even blink. He looked me straight in the eye and he said, yes, I am more sanctified at my age than Paul was when he wrote to Rome. What do you do with somebody like that? I mean, how do you uh, try to to explain to them what the Word is teaching. Here's where you have what we call love lines that all of us have. We hear a doctrine from our home church or from our pastor or from some Christian mentor that we have great affection for and admiration towards, and uh, we accept their teaching. And then later on, if it's challenged, no argument in the world will cause us to leave our dedication to those love lines. We all struggle with that sort of things, but I would hope that when we look at the clear biblical teaching in matters of this nature, that uh, we would be able to snip those lines wherever necessary. And I tried to explain to this young man, I said, do you realize how far you must discount the law of God, and how much you must exaggerate your own achievement to come to the conclusion that you live now without sin. I pray that by now this young man has since abandoned that idea because the conviction of the Holy Ghost usually is powerful enough to destroy such illusions and visions of grandeur about our own achievements. As I mentioned recently in this series, that it is the testimony of the greatest saints in history that the longer they are Christians, the more deeply immersed they become in the Word of God the more acutely conscious they become of their own shortcomings. That as we grow in grace, we grow in our understanding of our ongoing need for the grace of God. And so, it's important that we not be deceived into thinking that there are shortcuts to Christian maturity, to growing up into the fullness of conformity to the image of Christ, which is a lifelong pursuit for the godly. And again, none of us will achieve that perfection
until we enter into glory and all the remnants of sin and the flesh are removed from us. In one sense, it's comforting to me to know that even Paul had to struggle against the temptations of the flesh. Because there's probably never been a single person on the face of this earth who was more dedicated to the pursuit of holiness and to the pursuit of obedience to his Lord Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul was. And if the Apostle Paul had struggles like this, I take comfort in it, not because I want to rejoice in in evil or in somebody else's weakness, but that's just human nature, that when I see the weaknesses manifesting themselves in the greatest of the saints, mine don't seem to be totally without redeemable uh, hope. Oh, in the early days of my conversion, how I longed for that second work. I had some close friends that were from holiness churches, and even though they did not think that they had reached a level of total perfection, they still believed in this second work of grace and sanctification. And, and if ever, you know, Martin Luther said, if there ever was a monk who sought his way into heaven through monkery, it was Luther. And I have to say to you, if ever there was a Christian who more earnestly sought after the second blessing than I did, I'd like to find out who they were. I had good reason to because I brought so much baggage into my Christian life. I knew the power of the flesh, and uh, I knew that it was a power I had no ability in and of myself to overcome. And the day of my conversion, I went through a radical change in my behavior. My language changed instantly, and other areas of my life changed dramatically. For the first time in my life, I had a thirst and indeed a passionate hunger to learn the truths of the Scripture. For the first time in my life, I enjoyed prayer, and I actually liked to go to church and sing the hymns of praise to the Lord God. But there were sins that were besetting and ongoing. I'll never forget in the first few months of my conversion, sitting in the local college grill, and our math professor, who was a Christian, was sitting across from me while I was smoking, and he took a straw, and he held it like he was holding a cigarette, and he then put it to his lips pretend to inhale on the straw, exhale, and he said, let me tell you about my experiences with the Holy Ghost. Well, of course, that was his way of rebuking me for my failure to clean up my life as a new Christian with this business of smoking. And it was because of smoking that I was on the lookout for instant sanctification. And if ever a new Christian struggled with that, I think I set the world's record. I tried everything. One evangelist gave me this clue. He said, if you want to stop smoking, put a picture of Jesus in your cigarette package. 
And every time you want to smoke, you take that pack of cigarettes out and you look at the picture of Jesus and you say, I love you, Jesus, and then you will not be tempted to smoke. So I tried it. By about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, nothing was more repugnant to me than the picture of Jesus, and I had to take it out. I can't tell you how serious that struggle was for my soul. How I would come to the text of Scripture, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. And I would say, I can't say that. I can't do all things through Christ who strengthened me. I had people lay hands on me. I had a holiness minister pray for the second work of grace and my instant sanctification. Didn't work. Didn't take. For the first time in my life, I heard somebody pray in tongues over me to deliver me from this problem. Another minister gave me a nail and told me to put it in my pocket, and I put it in my pocket. He said, every time you're thinking about smoking, think of the death of Jesus. Pull out that nail and think of what Jesus did for you. And that lasted a few hours until I threw away the nail. From the day I was a Christian till the first time I went 24 hours without smoking, it was 25 years. It took me 25 years to go one day without smoking. And then it took me another 10 years after that to go a month. And it was at least another 10 years after that to get rid of it all together. And all that time, I listened to the accusation of Satan. I struggled with my own spiritual state because I had a, an addiction to the flesh that I simply could not get rid of. And I know I'm not alone with that sort of thing. That in a sense, though it shouldn't be, this becomes a normal dimension of the Christian life, that we all are faced with some sort of besetting sin that we come before God and we seek to get rid of, and sooner or later we have to hear the words, my grace is sufficient for thee. And I can feel the anguish. I don't mean to cheapen that statement about feeling one's pain, but I can feel the anguish of the apostle in this text. As elsewhere in his letters, he talks about the war that goes on in the soul of the Christian between the spirit and the flesh, between the old man who doesn't want to die and the new man who is working for inward renewal and maturing in Christ. Uh, I can't tell you why sometimes the Lord allows us to struggle for years and years and years before the liberation comes. But He does. Yet at every moment, the grace is there to overcome, no matter what it is. Now, 
It was Wesley, John Wesley, who first taught the idea with any success that there is a work of grace by the Holy Ghost by which, though one was not rendered totally perfect morally, nevertheless people were able to achieve what Wesley called a perfect love, and that that for Wesley was the second work of grace that is available in the Christian life. But out of that idea has come broad attention to the idea of some kind of higher life of sanctification that results in two tiers or two levels of Christians. There's the ordinary Christian who seeks spiritual growth, reads his Bible, goes to church, is diligent about making use of the means of grace, who nevertheless never reaches that higher plateau that is called the higher life or the deeper life. And again, at the end of the 19th century and through the turn of the 20th century in England and in the United States, there were several movements that were spawned that were called deeper life movements, where the secret was revealed to the broad Christian community of how a person could get to that second level, that higher plateau of spiritual victory, the victorious Christian life. I'm sure that you've been exposed to much teaching and much literature on that subject. In more recent era, eras, the language that is used to promise this deeper level is called the Spirit-filled life, so that you have two kinds of Christians. Those who are indwelt by the Holy Ghost, born of the Holy Spirit, regenerated by the power of the Holy Ghost, assisted in their quest for sanctification by the help of the Holy Ghost, but these people have not yet been filled with the Spirit to the level that they now reach this second plateau. And with the advocates of the Spirit-filled life that you hear all over the place, for the most part, they don't claim total perfection, just a much greater level of sanctification than is normally achieved by other Christians. I heard one Christian leader speak about the Spirit-filled life. He didn't claim perfection, and he said, from time to time, I will pray a prayer of confession for my sins, comma, if I have any. I don't think I'll ever be able to say that until heaven if I have any. I could keep you here for the rest of the evening expounding to you the manifold ways in which I have fallen short of the glory of God since I awakened from my bed this morning. Time would not allow me 
to confess all of the transgressions that I've been guilty of in the last 24 hours. But for me to think that I can go a day or a week or a month without sin, I have the same problem that that 17-year-old boy from Texas had. For me to think that I can go without sin for an hour, I have to pull God down or raise myself up. Because remember the Apostle Paul tells us here that the law is spiritual. And when I look at myself through the lens of the law, I don't have to look very far or look very long to find out that there is no if about the abiding sins that mar my life. Now, along with this very, very dangerous doctrine of sanctification that is persistent in Christian circles, there is also a Christian view of anthropology that tends to go side by side with it. I'm sure that if I took a poll of those of you who are here tonight, a significant percentage of you, if you've been exposed to much teaching in the Christian world, would take it as a matter of course to affirm the truth of tripartiteism, namely that you are so constituted as a human being to be made up of a triune nature, body, soul, and spirit. Have you ever heard that? Let me see. Come on. I'm taking down names. All right. Many of us are taught that as a matter of fact that that's what Christian orthodoxy teaches, that we are body, soul, and spirit. Then you run to Paul's uh, Thessalonican uh, benediction where he says, may the Lord bless you, body, soul, and spirit. So here the Bible says, body, soul, and spirit. Never mind it. Elsewhere he talks about the bowels, the mind, the heart, and at least three or four other elements of the uh, constituent makeup of man without setting forth an actual anthropology for us. But the idea is so helpful and practical for somebody who is struggling with the difference between the regular Christian life and the higher Christian life. The way this usually works is something like this, that if you're just a Christian, you have the Holy Ghost in your body and in your soul, but it hasn't yet reached your spirit. And so, you are two-thirds of the way along in the Christian growth, touching two out of the three constituent parts of your human nature. But if you want the higher life, if you want to have a Spirit-filled life, then the Spirit of God has to affect you not only in your body and in your soul, but finally reach your spirit. See how convenient that is? As a carriage for higher life theology, trust me, 
If you look at the history of the church, every time tripartism has raised its head back in the early centuries, even to the day, it has always been to carry in its wake some other heresy. Where the Bible makes the clear distinction between a physical aspect of your humanity and a non-physical aspect, body and soul are how we are constituted in Scripture. And if it's only the Holy Ghost that can distinguish between mind and soul and spirit and will and all the rest of these designations that we have. But fundamentally, Scripture sees you as a duality, a physical aspect, a non-physical aspect, body and the soul. And nowhere in Scripture do we find this idea that the spirit will get to two out of three and not to the other one. And so all of that is but a brief theological preface for us to look further expositionally at Paul's letter to the Romans so that you might know what's at stake here in the teaching of this book. Let me just… one more point before I go to the text, and that is in my estimation the most acute and comprehensive refutation, both theologically and biblically, of all types of perfectionism ever written was penned by the late great Princeton theologian Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. B.B. Warfield wrote a single thick volume entitled simply Perfectionism. And if you want to look more deeply at the holiness movement, the deeper life movements that I've mentioned uh, by way of outline so far tonight, I would commend to you the serious reading of that book by Warfield, Perfectionism, and you second the motion. Okay, I just figured you would. All right, let's look then uh, to verse 15. I've already looked at the first part. We know that the law is spiritual but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Paul expresses some confusion. He's perplexed, not by some abstract theological mystery that is bothering his cranium. What is perplexing him here is his own behavior. He says, sometimes I don't understand myself. I just don't know why I do the things that I do. And then he goes on here to talk about this conflict that is rooted in the will, where he says, on the one hand, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things that I don't want to do, Those I do. Now, when I read this from the pen of the Apostle Paul, there's something that strikes me instantly from the text. I see immediately that Paul never had the benefit of reading Jonathan Edwards' classic, Freedom of the Will, (laughs) because I'm convinced that if Paul had listened to Edwards, he would never have written in the manner that he writes here. However, the one difference, big, one of the big differences between uh, 
Paul and Edwards is that Paul was penning these words under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, so he didn't have to apologize to Jonathan Edwards or Martin Luther or anybody else. But uh, I struggle with this because I'm totally convinced of the soundness of, of Edwards' argument about how the will functions and operates in human beings, that I'm always taken aback when I see Paul speaking in a way that doesn't sound at all like Edwards. But I understand this, that when Paul writes this personal testimony, he is not engaging in the whole philosophical discussion of how the will functions. I am as convinced as I am that I'm standing here in this pulpit tonight that when Paul looked down from glory and read over the shoulder of Jonathan Edwards that he was quite impressed by the astute observations that the Puritan divine made. But here Paul is speaking in a manner of concrete language that I think every one of us can relate to. When he says, I don't understand why I do the things that I do, because the very things I don't want to do, I do. And that which I want to do, I don't do. Edwards would tap him on the shoulder and say, just a minute, Paul. Don't you realize that you always choose according to your strongest inclination at the given moment of your choice. Now, I'm going to just say that, throw it out there for you to chew on this week, because next week, God willing, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on Edward's understanding of the will and how it relates to what Paul is teaching here. In other words, we will go into the analysis of what goes on in the making of moral and spiritual choices in our lives. But again, that's not Paul's purpose here. He's speaking plainly, practically, the way all of us do, as if all things were equal. Let me ask you this. How many of you would like to lead a life of perfect obedience to Christ? Look at that. Raise your hand. Come on now. Yes, you do, Nick right? Well, why don't you? Huh? Why don't you? If that's what you want, why don't you do it? How many of you would like to be free of sin? Why aren't you? (laughs) Because all things being equal, you'd like to be free of sin. All things being equal, you'd like to be perfectly obedient to the Lord. But alas and alack, all things aren't equal. Because just when you want to be obedient to Christ, you will find conflict in your own hearts between your general desire of obedience and the specific act of obedience that confronts you along with the strength of the temptation towards disobedience. And so you cry, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is oh so weak. So again, we are people of mixed desires. 
That's why I said to you before that life doesn't really become complicated until you're born again. Before you're born again, you only have one principle, the flesh. Like Augustine said, only one person's riding this horse, and it's Satan. And this horse does the will of Satan, walks according to the course of this world, according to the power of the prince of the air, willingly, happily submitting to the temptations of Satan. But once God the Holy Spirit raises you from spiritual death, puts Christ in the saddle, the rest of your life is the battle between two jockeys over who's going to ride this horse. Satan doesn't give up easily. The flesh doesn't die instantly. And so, life now is complicated because we are people involved in a war that penetrates the very deepest recesses of our souls and lasts, as I said, until our glorification in heaven. And so this is the experience that is universal among Christians that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Now, we could stop right there and say, well, this is the way it is. The flesh doesn't die easily. So who can achieve perfection? Why don't I eat, sleep, sleep in tomorrow morning, eat, drink, and be merry, and not be so earnest about my sanctification since I can't reach the goal anyway? Forgetting the other things that the Apostle Paul said about forgetting those things that are behind and reaching towards those things that are ahead, we press towards the mark. We pummel our bodies to subdue it. We enter and engage in a fight, and we're admonished by the Scriptures not to yield so easily to the sin that besets us, for we have not yet resisted unto blood. The very fact that you're here tonight indicates that you take your Christian life seriously. You're not satisfied just to going to worship on Sunday morning or an adult class on Sunday morning. You want more. You want to dig deeper into the Scriptures because you know that through the teaching of the truth of the Word of God, which is a light under your path, that these things will help you in this struggle, that these are means of God's grace by which we are able to progress in our sanctification. The fact that no one makes it clear to the finish line in this world does not mean we're supposed to stop running. You understand that. We are never allowed to be at ease in Zion and say, this far I've progressed and no further. We are to be diligent in every way to feed the new man and to kill the old man. And again, I'm going to talk about this, God willing, next Sunday night, both in terms of the philosophical implications of how the will, the will of a Christian person actually functions 
And at the same time, as I look at some of those abstract ideas of the operation of the will, it is my hope and plan for following Sabbath evening to give you some very practical suggestions on how to increase your sanctification. I'm not going to give you any secrets for a Spirit-filled life. No, 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 because I don't believe in those. But I do believe that one Christian will progress further than another. Not that there are two distinct levels of Spirit-filled and non-Spirit-filled people in the world, but that each one of us is at a different place in our Christian pilgrimage. No two people in this room started their Christian walk at the same place. Many of you became Christians, never smoked anything in your life. You never had to struggle over that, but you had something else you struggled with. Some of the things you struggled with were a piece of cake for me because we're different, and we come with different baggage. And not only do we come at different times, in different circumstances, with different baggage, but our progress in sanctification is different one from another. I I do like that bumper sticker that says, be patient, God's not finished with me yet. Because the one thing that we are supposed to manifest as a people of God is that we are to have a love, a charity that covers a multitude of sin. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to be soft on gross and heinous sin. That's not what I'm talking about. And the New Testament makes it clear that we're not to give each other license for gross and heinous sin. But the average run-of-the-mill everyday struggles that all Christians have are to be covered by that charity. If I see you slipping a little bit You know what you're going to hear from me? Got you covered. That's under the charity. We're not going to sweat the small stuff, are we? And we're to be forbearing and patient and encouraging one with another. One of the worst sins we can ever have is to establish our own achievements as the norm by which all Christians are to be judged. That's the temptation. If I have success or victory in one area of my life, my normal human tendency of the flesh is to elevate that to the touchstone of true spirituality. And if you don't measure up to me in that regard, then there's something really wrong with you. You know, I struggled with that for many years because from the day I was born again, I had this hunger and thirst for the Scripture. Nobody had to twist my arm and say, you have to set aside so much time every day to read the Bible, or you need to read the Bible through in a year, or you need to do this with discipline and that discipline with reading Scripture. I can't believe, I can't remember once in my life that I picked up the Bible out of a sense of duty. Yeah. And I used to wonder about my Christian friends. I'd say, what's with these guys? I never see them reading their Scriptures. They, never want, they don't even know what's in there. And they're complaining all the time that it's too hard or it's boring or all of this. I said, what's the matter with you? 
But you see, they weren't all called of God to be teachers of the Bible. And God, with my vocation, planted a desire in my heart that made it easier for me to do that particular thing. And even with that, I've wasted more time by not studying the Scriptures the way I should than any two people in this world. But do you see what we do? If I'm gifted with evangelism, I want to establish evangelism as the supreme gift. If I'm gifted in teaching, that's got to be the most important gift. If I'm gifted in generosity, then giving is the real touchstone of spirituality. We do that. That's why Paul had to write to the Corinthians and say, hold it, hold it. We have different gifts, different offices. We're at different places. But that's part of our growth as Christians, the understanding that the things that are not that big of a deal with us may be very, very difficult for other people. And the things that I struggle with, you may never struggle with at all. That's why we're in this together. Sharing in the Spirit, sharing in the Word, sharing in encouragement, praying for each other, covering each other with charity. All right, we'll look, as I said, at these other things, God willing, next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, every time we seek for instant perfection, we are only disappointed and frustrated. But when we fail to reach the ultimate goal, grant, O Lord, that we may not surrender to that discouragement, but that we may continue to press towards the mark that You have set before us in Christ Jesus. Amen.